I'm Fred Eichler, and I have been a lifelong admirer of Fred Bear and his legacy. As a kid growing up reading Fred Bear's field notes and watching his adventures on TV instilled in me a passion to experience the many things Fred got to experience in his hunting career. I'm excited to introduce each new episode of this digital field notes series and to continue the legacy of a man that had a monumental impact on not only me, but also on the sport of archery. Chapter 11, Mozambique, Africa, 1964, Part 1. Wednesday, June 3rd, 7 a.m. It seems like a sacrilege to say that we are sitting by an ebony wood fire as we wait for breakfast this first morning of our hunt in this African autumn. The black ebony is from dead trees and branches dragged into camp behind the hunting cars. It burns with a hot glow. Within an hour, we will leave for a 40-mile trip into elephant country, bush roads all the way. My companions are Peter Barrett, outdoor editor of True Magazine, Arthur Godfrey, radio and television celebrity, and Robert Halmy, New York photographer. We have separate missions, yet all centered about a common one. Godfrey is here for the presentation ceremonies related to his gift of an airplane to one of the African bush doctors near Nairobi. This will follow our hunt. I want to kill an elephant with a bow and arrow. Bob will take the pictures, and Pete Barrett wants a story of it all. The group met in Salisbury, Rhodesia, on Sunday, June 1st. I joined the other members of the party there, flying back from Nairobi after a three weeks sightseeing and photography safari with my wife in Uganda and Kenya. We had still to fly on to Bera, from which a 50-minute flight by bush plane took us to the main camp. We are now in Camp Ruark, 15 miles from the airstrip. The well-known writer Robert Ruark has hunted from here on several occasions. Our hunting country is Mozambique, or Portuguese East Africa, somewhat farther south than the familiar hunting territory of Kenya. The country is rough and game reported to be plentiful. We look forward to this hunt with great anticipation. The camp is clean and tidy. All the buildings are masonry with thatched roofs. 
Small bundles of grass are laid overlapping, like shingles, making a remarkably watertight and snug roof. Godfrey has the White House on a little hill beside the camp on the banks of the Save River, where hippos grunt all night and crocodiles sun themselves by day on the sandbanks across the river. The clear water is the home of tigerfish, so named because of their animal-like teeth, and we hope to catch some of them while we're here. Bob and I share a fine masonry hut, and two of the professional hunters sleep in the Apache trailer brought with us for use on overnight hunts. Pete Barrett has a place of his own where he writes his daily notes undisturbed. Godfrey, in his White House, needs solitude also to do his daily radio tapes flown to the States twice a week for broadcasting. The fall climate of Mozambique is bracing and refreshing in the early morning. The nights are cool, around 50 degrees average, and the days are as pleasantly warm as my home in Michigan in September. The grass has begun to brown, and leaves are just beginning to turn and fall. Mozambique is a paradise for game. We have seen almost everything except elephant and buffalo in the short time we have been here. Yesterday, in a little pre-hunt sortie, Bob and I and our Portuguese hunter, whom we call Fish, because his name, Amandu Pixé, means just that, saw hundreds of impala and warthogs and many, many other species. Eland, Niala, wildebeest, oribi, reed duck, dick-dick, and baboons. My initial shots of the hunt were not noteworthy, over an impala and under a water buck. We found a water hole that had a great many animals visit and had plans to go back to hunt there today, but word came into camp that elephants were coming to water near a village about 40 miles away, and we decided to investigate this first. Noon, same day. We are getting lunch and provisions for going after the elephants. I am writing in the main lodge. On the wall opposite me hang two confiscated muzzle-loading guns with inscriptions beneath. Ex-Poacher Pfaff, now Game Warden, and Ex-Poacher Mawinga, now Game Warden. Poaching is a very serious and troublesome thing in Africa. The natives devise effective but cruel snares and traps to catch animals, and wildlife officials are using every means to apprehend them. It seems apparent here that some of the poachers are very penitent indeed. While waiting for provisions, I have time to jot down a word about our serenade last evening. Fourteen natives came by to visit us. They had drums and other musical instruments and put on a show that lasted for several hours. Godfrey returned the compliment by entertaining them with his ukulele, and he made a short tape for his radio show. Thinking of the hunt ahead, I am reminded that the elephants have smaller tusks here than some of the monsters that loomed up before my camera on safari last week in Uganda. However, Uganda is not open for bow hunting, 
so smaller ivory will have to do. Thursday, June 4th, noon. We're stranded in the bush with a broken tie rod on our Toyota, a Japanese hunting car. It was broken crossing a rocky riverbed this morning. Bob and Fish are taking it off to try to make repairs. If they are not successful, we may have to hike the five miles back to camp. On the way here yesterday, an impala and a warthog jumped my bowstring, heard the twang, and they were gone before the arrow got there. And last evening, I came close to having a shot at a greater kudu. He was a beautiful animal, high at the shoulders, with record horns, Fish said. A kudu bull is impressive, with dark grayish-blue coloring set off by white stripes and long spiraling horns. The two females with him had tawny bodies with very faint stripes showing. Another chance I turned down was a niala, about 25 yards away. I thought his 18-inch horns were not big enough. He walked by me while I was making a stalk on a water buck. I could regret this later. The elephant hunt has not lived up to expectations. Natives often tell of an abundance of game near their villages to attract hunters in the area on the chance of getting meat. We missed them by several hours this morning, although we were on our way long before the reported time of passing. We followed them for some hours, but gave up and visited another village. Information here was vague and next to nothing, so we spent the afternoon and evening looking for lesser game, hoping to make another try at intercepting the elephants in the morning. Same day, 6 p.m., we returned to camp in the car which Bob, Fish, and six natives had managed to repair. After lunch, we went looking for the kudu we had seen. He was there, but was wild and out of sight in a flash. I shot low at a fine niala, at about 55 yards. Plans are to be up long before daylight tomorrow to try again to find the elephants coming for water. If we do not see them, we will return to the main camp in the afternoon for another try at Niala. Fish says that there is a good concentration of them there. On Saturday morning, we will return to Camp Ruark to lick our wounds and have a bath and shave. Our present method of hunting does not promise much success. We drive across country in the hunting car and occasionally come within long bow range of game. At other times, I drop off at some cover, and our African helpers try herding or I attempt to stalk. The latter is almost impossible because the grass is very dry and noisy. Only once did I have a chance at success in this. A waterbuck had gone into tall grass from the edge of the lake, and I had soft, bare soil to walk on. I got within twenty yards, but he was gone before I could draw the bow. There are few enough water holes and enough game to make blind hunts on trails or at water holes most interesting. But this method of hunting is seldom used here. I'm having difficulty selling my hunter on the idea of blind hunting 
but he is slowly learning the limitations of the bow. This is not to complain as he is most cooperative in every way. All of the personnel here are very pleasant, including the natives, and even the poachers after we took their weapons from them. On Tuesday, we have been invited by the governor, who will be our host, to see a native dance by the people of Zavala, a small coastal village. We will fly there from camp in a government plane. It will be marimba music with the usual drums, I suppose. Should make a good picture. Saturday, June 7th, 8 a.m. Have just finished breakfast and am sitting by the fire with the low sun warming my back. This is our hunting camp. We came in here last night from the elephant hunt. A big pachyderm died Friday by one arrow. The day was both exciting and exhausting. We were up at 5 a.m. and on the trail at 6. We soon found droppings that were fresh and steaming in the cool temperature. After 15 minutes in the bush, Savo stopped us and took the two rifles and my bow and laid them on the ground by a tree. He then took a well-worn shiny tin flask with a screw top from his pocket and began a ceremony. He took small pinches of snuff from the flask between his thumb and first finger, waving his hand back and forth over the guns and bow before depositing it on a green leaf he had placed on the ground beside them. Each time his hand moved across the weapons, he muttered something in his native tongue. He was imploring the spirits of his ancestors to guide us successfully on the hunt, I was told. On our way again, we soon ran into a reed buck, and immediately after this, a herd of about 25 buffalo ran off at the sight of us with a great crashing of brush. Unfortunately, the elephants were just ahead of this, and they also ran off out of sight. We tried catching up with them, walking fast and sometimes running, but it was 12 miles and three and a half hours later before we found them again. By this time, the herd had grown in number to about 200. This seemed to be the place for this large group to gather for their midday siesta under the shade of the trees in the valley. We were in brush that did not cover us completely, and the elephants were lined up three and four deep for a third of a mile or more. There were big ones, small ones, and medium-sized ones, all moving at a slow pace toward the trees. Downwind from them, we managed to move up to about 50 yards, crouching down and running part of the time. There was a large elephant toward the rear, but it had no tusks. Others had tusks, which varied in size, but nothing too exciting as far as we could see. Fish, Halmi, and I planned to work in close to the line and pick out the best bull we could find, but were suddenly confronted with unexpected problems. Two scouts from the rear of the herd either saw us or sensed that something was wrong and cut out of the line to investigate and get downwind from us. They came straight toward us, big ears extended and flapping, trunks in the air moving noiselessly as elephants do. 
Our natives and the head man with a 375 realized the danger and warned us with a low whistle before they scattered into the bush in hopes of finding a tree big enough to climb. Just before they fled, I saw the terrified expression of the gun bearer's face and was about to ask him for his rifle, but he got away too fast. Fish had his gun at ready as we also took off. Fish had never seen so many elephants at one time, he told us. He is a young fellow with limited experience, although very reliable and a good shot. He is the present champion of trap shooters in Mozambique. The two scouts in the herd had caught our scent, but how they got the message to the rest of the herd, which ran off into the trees, was one of the marvels of nature that man has no way of determining. With the elephants out of sight, we reorganized our group. The natives held a meeting and came back with the decision, too many elephants, we all get killed. So they stayed behind while the rest of us circled again, making sure to stay downwind and went into the forest. Almost immediately, four or five elephants, led by a good bull, came our way. He did not have big tusks, but was a large elephant. The bull stopped behind some bushes, and we froze beside our cover at the edge of a clearing across from him. The bull's tusks stuck out about two feet. Fish whispered to me, shoot him. I could not shoot him, of course, until he moved from behind the bushes, and even then, it meant that I had to step out into the open before drawing my bow. Bob was in proper camera position behind me, and the suspense was unbearable. In what seemed like an eternity, the bull started moving out across the opening about 40 yards away. I stepped out from my cover and the bull turned his head to look at me. I am not sure whether he was walking or standing still when I shot. The film will tell the story. The arrow entered at the elevation I had intended it to, but farther back than I wished. He and the other elephants in the group ran off. We heard more elephants near us and were relieved that they did not choose to come closer. I knew I had a killing shot, but did not know how far the bull could travel. We rounded up the natives and sat down to rest away from the trouble area. In about 15 minutes, we decided to take the trail. The natives held another conference, and their decision was again, no. Fish was able to convince them, after some time, however, to stay with us. The trail was not hard to follow. There was plenty of blood, but after 200 yards of traveling, we heard a sinister, throaty blowing, and a hundred yards ahead, an enormous elephant's head showed up over the bush. Again, the natives scattered, and again we had to reassemble them over their protests about continuing the trail. When the elephant had gone off into the trees, Fish used his most convincing persuasion to get them to come with us. We trailed the bull I shot for another 200 yards and then ran into more elephants. This time, nothing could convince the natives to continue. Besides, we had no water and were 12 miles from the nearest village. The sun was hot. 
and the temperature about 90 degrees. Both Fish and I had blisters on our feet. Savo finally advised us to turn back, saying he would send two men at daybreak and find our elephant. The village needed meat badly, and Fish assured me that they would do this. This is the first time I have ever left a good blood trail, but common sense told me to turn back. We detoured around two more groups of elephants before reaching the village at 3 p.m. Everyone was exhausted and badly in need of water. Alfredo, the tracker, offered to go after the car four miles away, and Savo, who was chief of the village, offered us everything he had. Muddy water from a well-used vessel, which we refused. Next, he killed two chickens and had them roasted in five minutes. They were still bloody, and we refused them also, as politely as we could. He then went into the bush and came back with palm beer. This is the juice of the palm tree, and it was full of ants. But we drank some anyway. Our natives accepted everything that was offered and were completely refreshed. Alfredo got back with the car at 6 p.m., and we fell on the beer, fruit, and bread it contained like hungry wolves. It was dark by the time we started out, and getting out of the bush back to the road was a nightmare. Fish steered by the stars. The Southern Cross loomed brightly in the sky. On our way, we saw the beautiful African porcupine, a honey badger, and a civet cat in the headlights. Fortunately for us, Walter Johnson Sr., a seasoned hunter who runs these camps, had arrived at the main camp from Lorenzo Marcuse, and hearing that we were hunting elephants from the lower camp, came down to see how we were faring. This provided transportation, and he accompanied us in the morning when we left to look for the elephant. We passed the native trackers on the way and found my bull about 200 yards from where we left the trail. He had died on his belly without rolling over. One tusk was buried in the earth. When an elephant is down, word goes out to the villages nearby, and the entire populace comes to get a share of the meat. Every man has a knife, with which he hacks and cuts the carcass at top speed, hoping to get a lion's share before it is all gone. The women carry the meat off in their woven grass baskets, biting off pieces to eat as they go. It is remarkable to see how fast the enormous hulk of an elephant can be reduced to practically nothing by these meat-hungry people. The natives were happy. Plenty of biltong. We photographed the interesting operation in detail. I wanted a head mount, so the entire head, trunk, and tusks were loaded into the hunting car. It took 15 men to do this. The arrow had gone in about 20 inches and did great damage to the liver. Walter Johnson estimated the bull at about four tons, the tusks at 35 to 40 pounds each. Dr. Ken Miller from Beaumont, Texas, is hunting here also. He had trained at Harper Hospital in Detroit and knew our family doctor, 
B. E. Henning, and had also once relieved doctors Clippert and Keyport in Grayling while they were on vacation. His home was then in Cadillac, 60 miles from Grayling. Monday, June 8th, 10 a.m. Our car is being repaired, so we took another one for hunting this morning. I made a stalk on an impala and got a shot at 50 yards. The arrow went high and sliced along the backbone into the shoulder area. It ran about 400 yards and folded up. He was an old buck, with face and neck badly scarred from fighting. We started back about 3 o'clock and saw a fine Niala buck going into some bushes. I got out and had quiet footing for a stalk and then made one of my lucky shots. At 40 yards, a very brief opportunity presented itself as he was passing out of sight behind a tree. The arrow was away and missed the tree by a scant inch. He ran about 150 yards and fell. The Niala is a beautiful animal and a rather rare trophy. The natives are perplexed and astonished at the power of the bow. In fact, one of the problems of having them see how animals can be dispatched with this weapon is that they often want to pull and examine it. As a result, the handle becomes a bit tacky. Sunset is at 6 p.m. in this southerly quarter of Africa, and sunrise occurs at 6 a.m. It is difficult to get used to seeing the sun in the north at noon. Godfrey and Pete Barrett came in from hunting today with a giant eland Arthur had shot. It was a beauty, with 30-inch horns weighing 12 to 1,400 pounds. Yesterday was a lazy day for us. Pete and Arthur went hunting, and Fish, Bob, and I took a ride. I did not take my bow. In the afternoon, we fished for tigerfish. It was not easy. I caught one about four pounds and hooked another that got away. Godfrey came in with a bushbuck and a niala with 28-inch horns. Tuesday, June 9th, 10 a.m. We're airborne in a twin-engine Piper plane. Godfrey, Barrett, Halmy, Fish, and I on our way to Zavala to see and photograph the native dance. We visited briefly this morning with Dr. Miller and his companion, Mr. Buckley, also from Beaumont. They left very early to hunt a buffalo that has been damaging crops at a native village. It also killed one of the villagers a few days ago. This recovery period following the elephant hunt, while welcome, is really three days lost from hunting. I'm sure the native dancing will be most interesting but the days slip by, and before long, the sun will rise on our departure date. This is such magnificent hunting country, it is disappointing not to be out in the bush in all daylight hours. The rivers by both camps are alive with hippos and crocodiles. We see many of both each day, and always hear the hippos at night. Guinea fowl, francolin, and sand grouse plus a very small quail, are also in this area. Other birds are plentiful too, and some have gorgeous coloring. Coming into camp last evening, 
we found a beautiful dead roller, African jay. Fish's friend Rui, who was in camp last night, skinned it for me. He is a taxidermist and will mount it. Thursday, June 11th. There is so much to do and see here that daily notes are not always possible. The native dance at Zavala was a great show. 23 marimbas and 75 dancers. The performance lasted two hours. The highlight of this evening, from my point of view, was to be made a member of the Chopi tribe. Chopi means archer, and it was therefore fitting that my name should be Chopi. The indoctrination was very interesting. The Portuguese administrator, Saul Rafael, introduced me to their two chiefs and told those assembled of my shooting an elephant. This drew enthusiastic applause and many eyes rolled in my direction. The setting for the dance was a small amphitheater on a hillside overlooking the Indian Ocean. Seats in a half circle stepped up from the sand floor to the pillars that supported an arcade-like lattice roof. Following the entertainment, we were driven back to the airport where Fish's mother met us with a delicious lunch. Red and white wine, large, very tasty shrimp, crab cakes, deviled crab, crab turnovers, passion fruit, the sweetest tangerines I have ever eaten, and sandwiches and rolls. We returned to main camp at 4 p.m. and were back at our hunting camp at 6. The evenings in camp are enjoyable, cool enough for a jacket. We sit around the campfire with cocktails and tidbits, swapping stories. Dinners are delicious. Lately, we have been having Eland liver, beautifully prepared, served in bite-sized pieces. All the meat is game. First we had Impala, then Arthur shot the Eland, and last came the Niala. This was the best, I thought. Our vegetables come from a well-kept garden beside camp. Breakfast is a cutlet of meat of some kind, an egg and bacon, all following fruit in great variety. Lunch in the bush is a treat also. Oranges, pears, apples, sandwiches, and slices of tenderloin rolled in eggs and breadcrumbs. The day begins at 6 a.m. sharp when tea is served at bedside by a bright-eyed boy of 15 or so. Another young man soon follows with a pitcher of hot water which he places on the washstand. Each leaves immediately after his task, closing the screen door silently behind him. Daylight is just beginning to show with a red glow in the east. Outside, the embers from last night's campfire are stirred into a blaze as we emerge wearing warm jackets to sit around the fire with an extra cup of hot tea. We talk of various things, interrupted at intervals by the grunting of hippos in the river. Baboons bark and bushbucks snort, accompanied by the songs of birds at sunrise. Walter Johnson Sr. is the sage of the group and is usually the first to get to the fire. He is about 55 years old and has spent most of his time in the bush, 
and much of it hunting ivory. He says he thinks he has killed close to a hundred elephants. A half hour of this, and we move into the dining room for breakfast. This is an open-air, round hut with a conical grass roof. The outside wall rises some 30 inches and is open to the roof above this. Our dining table is about eight feet long. A serving table stands just outside. An important part of the day's routine is sick call, when the women of the nearby villages bring their children to Walter Johnson, Jr. for treatment before he starts out hunting. The youngsters have any number of ailments, a thorn in the foot, a reed underneath a toenail, cuts on the body, a snake in the stomach, which means a sore stomach. But most of all, an eye ailment that could be prevented by more liberal use of soap and water. Treatment is administered from a first aid kit, kept well stocked by departing hunters. Breakfast is over about 7.30, and we are ready to start the day's hunt. The engines of the hunting cars are warmed up by the time we climb aboard. The cars are open with windshields folded down over the hoods. Almost the entire country can be covered with these cars, and it is difficult, except far from water, to travel even for five minutes without seeing game. There are warthogs by the hundreds, impalas by the thousands, with a good sprinkling of waterbuck everywhere. In lesser numbers are zebra, hartebeest, wildebeest, kudu, niala, sable, eland, buffalo, bushbuck, reedbuck, forest hog, dick-dick, elephant, and several species of smaller animals not known by me. Returning from the hunt at night, if game has been taken, we go directly to the skinning area, which is, fortunately, beyond the boundaries of our camp. The natives who take care of the camp live here amid skins, bones, skulls, and horns. Strips of meat hang drying on racks in the sun. This is the method of preparing biltong, and it tastes like dried beef, but it would be better, I should think, if it were soaked in brine first. Trophies are admired by the hunters and remeasured, and talk is of record book minimums, which no one seems to know for sure. Going into camp, young Babunda, the younger brother of our gun bearer, carries the gear into our quarters. If other hunters are back, we loiter by the fire to hear their experiences of the day. The cocktail table is set up and appetizers served during the bull session that follows. The chill of the evening comes quickly, and during this hour we take turns at the shower, a circular hut with walls of vertical reeds and a pointed grass roof. The shower mechanism is a specially designed bucket with a spray nozzle at the bottom. Two chains turn it on and off. Dinner is always ready when we finish our cocktail hour, after which we return to the fire for an hour or so and then to bed, seldom later than 10 p.m. We have screen doors and two screen windows to keep out the bugs. Bob's in my hut has a wide black band around the bottom, 
on which someone has painted pictures of animals with white paint. One is a warthog with kudu horns. Yesterday, we started out early, tea at 5 a.m., leaving at 6 for a long trip to buffalo country. We never got there, however. We spent some of the time with two kudu bulls, but did not get a shot. Later on the way, I was able to get within 45 yards of a fine water buck and put an arrow through him. He ran about 200 yards and then went down. I had not realized these animals were so big. This one was nearly as large as a bull elk and had horns 28 inches long. By the time we were finished with pictures, it was too late to go on, so we returned to camp. Godfrey and his group had returned also. We had a fine lunch, and later did Godfrey's radio tape, in which he directed a roundtable discussion, including the details of shooting the elephant. Fred Bear's Field Notes is produced by the team at Bear Archery. Learn more about Bear Archery and its complete suite of products at beararchery.com. Narration by Alan Johnson. Direction, production, sound mixing, and editing by Smarter Labs. Theme song by Isaac Ollie. Chapter art and design by Samantha Marksberry. Special thanks to the Bear Archery team for providing their original content to produce these episodes. Visit beararchery.com to listen to all episodes, sign up for future updates, and see articles, maps, photos, videos, and more. 